Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined by State Senator Joe Comerford, who's the senator, of course, for most of our listenership area. Senator, thanks so much for being with us. I want to begin by asking you about something that is not local and not statewide, but was the front page article in today's New York Times, which was that Donald Trump is leading Joe Biden in the national polls and more significantly is leading, and sometimes by very significant numbers, in five of the six battleground states. You've been involved in politics for a long time. I wondered if you would care to share your reaction to that bit of news, that polling. Uh, yes, good morning, um, Bill and Buzz. I'm really happy to be with you. Uh, before I took office, I was campaign director for Move On, and one of the campaigns uh, that I was proud um, to work on was the campaign to endeavor uh, to block a Trump presidency. And, of course, we lost. Uh, so those whole uh, numbers are sobering. Um, I think we should take them very seriously. Uh, those of us who thought way back then, um, way back when, that Trump would never be able to be president of the United States, um, even though, I, you know, I think you and I and many uh, were doing our hardest to send up an alarm signal saying that he could very well be president. Uh, but anyone who thought that they, he couldn't, uh, then or now, uh, needs to get deeply engaged in the future of our nation, because another four years of a Trump presidency would be disastrous. Senator, we can hear the road noise, and we'll ask in just a moment where you are going and off to today. First, as long as we are on the topic of elections, we have numerous elections uh, in the local area tomorrow, and I'm wondering if you would care to share or are willing to share uh, with our listeners and mostly your voters who you are voting for in tomorrow's elections. Sure, yeah, and I, I just want to say a word about local elections. I believe they are absolutely critical. Uh, there is nothing harder than municipal governance, and that's, in our case, in Northampton, the school committee and uh, the city council and, of course, the mayor. Uh, I have nothing but overwhelming gratitude and admiration for the folks doing that work. Um, so for me, uh, in my own family, my wife Anne Hennessy is going back to the school committee, and I'm really proud of her and very, very grateful uh, she is uncontested, however, uh, so while I have to vote for her, there isn't a race there, uh, but I am really proud of her and grateful that she'll serve. Uh, for, for the city council, there are two at large. My vote uh, for this cycle will go to Garrett Perry and Marissa Elkins. For the school committee, there, there are two at large votes that someone like me gets, like everybody gets. Uh, I'm going for Gwen and Aileen um, with those two votes. Gwen Agnew and Aileen. Oh. Aileen Davis, the, the person who's running. There are three at large. So there's Meg Robbins, Aileen, and Gwen. Uh, and I'm going for Aileen and Gwen. Okay. Thank you for sharing. I would like to ask you, Senator, well, you, we heard the road noise. Where are you off to? I'm uh, I'm off to Lowell today, a little bit stuck in traffic, driving hands-free for your listeners. Um, and uh, this, the Joint Committee on Higher Education has taken to the road, which I'm very proud of. Uh, we have 29 public 
higher education campuses between the community colleges, state colleges, and the University of Massachusetts. And we're going to visit them. And we've been in uh, Worcester at Chan Medical and Worcester State and Quinsigamon Community College. We've been at UMass Amherst and Greenfield Community College. And today we're off um, to Lowell to see the UMass campus of um, of the, the Lowell UMass campus and also um, a couple of community colleges in the region. What's the focus of the committee's hearings? Why are you there? Well, these aren't hearings. These are tours. There isn't anything better than hearing directly from the faculty, staff, and students at an, you know, at a, an institution. It is unbelievably up, both uplifting and also um, deeply moving to hear direct accounts of the impact of state policy and funding. And, you know, I can read, you know, a dozen briefs on things. I can read research, uh, but to hear a story from a student about the kind of help they received or the program that was most effective for them and, and hear why that is, or to talk to an educator on a campus about just the barriers they're facing or their students are facing. That's, that's the kind of transformative information that will help fuel our policy and spending. Uh, as you know, we really made a massive leap forward uh, for public higher education in this last year's budget. That's the, the one that's currently in place the fiscal year 24. Um, we, you know, we brought on this new program. Oh, is technology failing us? That would be a shame. <laughs> oh, dear. We are on the road with Senator Joe Comerford. When with a little luck, she'll be back. Dan, should we take a break and see if we can reconnect with the senator? Uh, and when we come back, the questions for the senator that I have in particular have to do with the Beacon Hill roll call printed in today's Gazette. What has passed the Senate? What is going to the House? We're getting near the end of the legislative session. Bills are moving. What is the senator doing? Why is she backing the legislation she is? We'll be right back. Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again I can't wait to get on the road again on the road You're again. listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Sarah McEwen, the Nursing Director for Emergency and Ambulatory Services at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Community hospitals are the cornerstone of health, healing, and well-being for our local community. It's a privilege and a pleasure to take care of our community, of you and the people you love. During this season of thanks, the Cooley Dickinson team is grateful to the community that supports us through your kind words, generous gifts, and legacy plans. Please visit us at cooleydickinson.org giving. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center. You tried the call center. 
and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart. Every year, more than 4 million pets enter shelters here in the United States. My friends at American Humane have been helping animals since 1877. The goal is to ensure that pets have a safe shelter, especially during natural disasters. Adopting a shelter pet allows shelters to help more animals awaiting care. Please consider adopting today and take some time to learn more about American Humane's other work at AmericanHumane.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Senator Joe Comerford. Uh, Buzz and I and the senator were talking during the break about the community colleges, not what, not the campus that the senator is off to today, but obviously very much in the same bailiwick. And Buzz, you raised the question about community colleges and funding. So could you bring the listeners into that conversation, please? Sure. I was asking you, Senator Joe Comerford, about uh, the problems that were just articulated on the show by a Middlesex Community College professor who's a member of the negotiating team, along with a Greenfield Community College professor who's a member of the negotiating team for a new contract. Could you tell us what the issues are there in what's alleged to be profound underfunding for this contract year? Well, actually, there's, there's two issues, I think, probably top of mind for community college professors. Um, one is the general low wage that... Uh, that educators, staff, and adjuncts are paid at community college. And right now, uh, I'm part of a free community college working group where salary equity comes up time and again. And I really hope we make some significant strides for our colleagues at community colleges. Uh, But the particular issue, I think, that was being discussed was a contract adjustment that is long overdue. Um, We have... Uh, a situation in Massachusetts where the governor sets negotiating parameters and the unions bargain and then the legislature funds. And we have to fund it. Um, And it's been before us for a very long time. Um, And it is overdue for us to pass what's called a supplemental funding bill with this agreed-upon raise in it of 2%. So a small raise it's long overdue, and we have to pass it. It's also very small, 2% versus a 6% inflation rate. How do we justify that? We don't justify it, Bill. We fight for more. I'm not justifying this. The legislature doesn't set the terms. The governor does. Um, and we have to do so much better um, for community college staff, faculty, uh, and uh, adjuncts. It's, it's imperative. Yeah, and I would note particularly the adjuncts, who, many of whom go from campus to campus. They're not paid for their transportation. They have no uh, permanent status, and they do not receive benefits. It's really quite an extraordinarily bad situation on which are for the faculty, and community colleges depend on these adjunct faculty members, these teachers and professors. So, and, and as Senator Comerford, you know, the full-time staff, uh, faculty, they... They work so hard. They do such a great job. The quality of the education is unbelievably high, and yet they're so, their pay is just 
unfair. It's unfairly low. No, yeah, I agree. Again, this is not a legislative, so I hope to intervene in a legislative fix, but traditionally this is a conversation between the bargaining unit and the executive branch, and the legislature just funds it. Um, I have been in significant conversations, uh, significant and extended conversations with the commissioner of higher education, a man named Dr. Noe Ortega, who I think is an exceedingly good commissioner. I'm honored to serve with him. Um, and as part of this free community college working group, which we set up, which I'm on, um, along with numbers of community college faculty and leadership and staff, um, we are talking about the issue of free community college, uh, but it cannot be on the backs of the workforce um, because it, it will be completely unworkable um, for them and, and certainly actually not fair for students either. You know, if we, if we believe in the promise of community college, which I do with all my heart, we want these institutions to remain excellent. But if they have, you know, eight failed searches in a single semester because they're not paying a wage that's livable, then shame on us because we're not helping them get the most excellent um, faculty and staff they can possibly get to teach our kids. We are speaking with State Senator Joe Comerford. Senator, I'd like to turn to a few other items of enormous significance to the legislature and in particular bills that seem to be progressing. Uh, these are covered in the Gazette today, in the Daily Hampshire Gazette under Beacon Hill Roll Call, a reprint of the Beacon Hill Roll Call by uh, article by Bob Kazin. Let me read two sentences, then I'd appreciate your response, please, Senator. The House and Senate uh, roll call records uh, record the votes for the uh, week of 20, October 23 to 27th. And the first item is this, menstrual products, Senate Bill 2481. The Senate 39 to 0 approved and sent to the House a bill that would require all prisons, homeless shelters, and K-12 schools to maintain free menstrual products, including sanitary napkins, tampons, and underwear liners in private and public restrooms, and to make them available in a convenient manner that does not stigmatize any persons seeking the products. You voted for this. Tell us what its chances are in the House and being signed by the governor and why you think it's important. Yeah, I was proud to vote yes. We've voted on this bill before. Uh, more than half of the public menstruates. Uh, it is a function of our bodies, and just like a school or a shelter would have toilet paper or Kleenex, so should it have access to sanitary products um, to, for menstruating people. It's really as simple as that. It's about dignity. It's about public health. It's about allowing more than half of the population um, to move forward in their days in ways that would, are prevented if they um, don't have access. And, you know, all you have to do is talk to high school students um, to know that the, the reality that many have to miss school because they don't have a, a pad or a tampon, uh, so therefore they cannot go to school because of the, you know, the embarrassment or just the impossibility um, uh, of going without sanitary products. All we have to know is we have to listen to that story to understand how simple this equation is. Um, we have to do this. We should also do it on public higher education campuses. 
um, although we'll have to get to that at another time. Um, and we should, uh, Natalie Blay and I, Rep Blay and I, have a bill to disclose the products, the contents of the products, uh, and to mandate healthier content. Um, that is in the pipeline in public health. And we have to do that, too, because many big states like New York and California are both making the products accessible, but then also they're, they're forcing the manufacturers to use better ingredients because they have to disclose these ingredients. What's true is that in some of the cheaper brands, they're using very harmful chemicals, um, like PFAS, uh, which is a known carcinogen and neurotoxin. Um, and so, you know, we have to get access to these and we have to make sure the access that we're getting is to high quality material. Senator Comfort, is there time in this legislative session for the bill to get to the House, be passed, reconciled with the Senate bill if there are differences, and get to the governor's desk? What happens at this bewitching hour to pieces of legislation like that which have passed the Senate? Yeah, we still have time, although, Bill, you're correct that we are um, rapidly running out of runway. And I think this is something for your listeners to know, that, you know, the in the second year of a two-year session, we do um, begin to pivot to elections um, in the legislature, whether we like it or not. Um, we didn't during COVID, and that was good and important. Uh, but, in fact, uh, we will need to wrap up and ter- really make haste on some important business um, in the next, you know, nine months or so. So there, And there's a ton to do. So we, you know... We have to really uh, begin begin being more productive than we have um, from this point to this point in this session. So the end of the year, the calendar year, doesn't signify anything of enormous importance to the legislative process, or does it? No, no, no. We're a two-year session, so we 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 go until December of twenty-four when a new class of people who have run um, in next year's election cycle are sworn in. Um, So we have time uh, to do this work. We just have to redouble our efforts um, on productivity and also great partnership. And the good thing is that the the Western Mass delegation defies all odds, right? We are deeply, deeply collaborative. Um, We just have to do that now as a legislature. So there's no rush from the calendar to for the House to oh, pass this bill, or, no. or there is? Yeah, there's a rush. I mean, we, you know, people may think that, you know, nine months seems like a long time. It's just not um, with so much to do, right? We have bond bills. We have budgets. We have many other pieces of legislation. So legislation that's really important, um, for example, I have a bill on public health. Um, that the governor, in a very last governor, Baker, misguidedly vetoed, right? That's going to pass the House first. Um, And you bet that I'm going to be laser-focused on getting that through the Senate. Everything we care about needs to be focused on um, really directly. And constituents that want something from the legislature, you know, um, are going to need to turn up the volume in uh, to make sure that we are uh, prioritizing issues that are of most importance. 
um, to the people we work for. Senator Comerford, I'd like to turn to another bill that has passed the Senate, according to the Beacon Hill Roll Call, HIV Prevention Drugs S-2480. The Senate approved the bill 38 to nothing. You were in favor of it. Can you tell our listeners about that? Because I don't think it's a piece of legislation that's gotten a lot of publicity, but it deserves it. Deserves it. Yeah, it's a good bill. Um, again, we passed this before. Um, it, it's, called, it's an access to a drug called PrEP. And PrEP is an HIV prevention drug. Um, and it is, you know, a, it is really um, helping to, to reduce the number of HIV infections um, across all cohorts of people. Um, and this is just allowing a pharmacist to offer a limited supply for someone, um, either between prescriptions or an emergency um, or just getting on a prescription, who knows, Uh, but it allows someone to be sexually active uh, without the risk of HIV infection or with a reduced risk, I think is probably a better thing for me to say, uh, because nothing is 100%. But it's it's quite heartening uh, and it's just a good harm reduction tool amid other harm reduction tools like um, protection, right, like condoms or other forms of protection. Uh, so, it's, you know, it's something we should just get get done um, in the bucket of good-to-do, need-to-do bills this session. Senator, this is Buzz. I- I'm just wondering a little inside look. Can you tell us how often do the Speaker uh, of the House and the President of the Senate actually meet to decide what's important to bring to the floor? Well, those meetings have increased, which I think is good news, uh, because one branch just cannot work without the other. Um, that's the reality of a bicameral legislature. Uh, so those, uh, you know, the productivity rests on the relationship between the House and the Senate and sharing common values. And, and as you know, um, the Senate takes lead on some things, the House takes lead on others. That's good. That just means that we're able to expand the kind of work we're doing. So this is Dan. I I have a follow-up to that, if you don't mind, Senator. Um, After a bill, let's say, passes committee, is it up to the Speaker or the President of the Senate to decide if that bill gets um, a a vote? I mean, maybe. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So so the legislative process is this. We file bills. We get co-sponsors on them. That helps both leadership and the committee chairs understand that there is, you know, an importance. Um, we have a hearing on those bills. Every bill has a public hearing. The committee makes decisions on those bills. Um, and hopefully the decision on bills we like and care about is favorable. And then it goes to what I call a destination committee. And that can be right to ways and means. It could be to a body called healthcare financing for the healthcare bills. It could be the joint committee or uh, standalone committee on rules and there's more deliberation there um and then yes leadership has a lot to say about what bills are prioritized to get ready to come to the floor um and so someone like me uh who gets bills reported favorably and we've now had a number of them which is very exciting my job is then to start to point leadership um in the direction of these bills right i've convinced the committee chairs about their importance. I've convinced them that it is um, 
urgent that they're reported out quickly so they have time. Uh, and now my job is to get the Senate president and the chair of Ways and Means to agree that, that the staff time should be directed um, at these. Thank you so much for that summary. You're going to feel right at home with other educators like yourself this afternoon in Lowell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I don't know about that. And just one thing before we go, uh, I want to remind um, listeners that I post every single vote I take on my own website, SenatorJoeComerford.org. I also post all of the testimony I write and the letters I write, the communication I have um, with external folks or internal folks. Uh, because I think it's super important that fo- that people see, the people I work for, um, constituents, see um, what I'm doing. I'll also um, share any committee vote I take, um, any and all committee votes I take. All people have to do is just let us know and we'll point you to where the information is. Um, and this is critically important uh, because you can't track stuff, you know, There's nothing stronger in the world than an informed, active, and engaged electorate. And we have to make it easier for people to participate in government. Because when you do, uh, government is so much better off. So um, I appreciate this. And part of it is a great um, media, a robust media. So thanks for all you do, um, Bill and Buzz. It's such a love fest. We're going to leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Goodbye. Senator, thanks so much. Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Captain John Cartilage will lead the Northampton Police Department in the interim while the search for a permanent chief gets underway. Cartilage is a Northampton native and is currently the captain of administration at NPD. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera made the announcement and said she plans to file a formal request for a proposal to find a consulting firm to handle the recruitment process. Chief Jody Casper is leaving to become the police chief in Nantucket. Election Day is tomorrow in many Western Mass communities. Voters in Northampton, Greenfield, Amherst, East Hampton, and elsewhere will be electing new councilors, school committee members, and other contested seats to their municipal governments. A controversy is also brewing in Springfield, where mayoral candidate and city councilor Justin Hurst is being accused of having his associates pay people $10 to vote for him. Hurst is denying the allegations, calling them a smear tactic by incumbent Mayor Dominic Sarno's campaign. But in sworn statements, Springfield election workers have said they saw Hearst's vehicle drop off people at the polling place and an associate of his hand money to voters upon leaving the building. Police officers in Hatfield, Sunderland, and Waitley will soon begin responding to some calls in partnership with mental health professionals. The co-responding social workers will be paid for by a grant from the State Department of Mental Health given to the Sunderland Police Department. The Sunderland Police will share the service with the neighboring communities in partnership with the nonprofit Clinical and Support Options, also known as CSO. Suncloud mixed today, cool with a high of 48 to 52. Showers and drizzle developing mid-evening tonight, an overnight low of 40 to 46. Mild tomorrow, mixture of sun and clouds, slight chance for a morning shower, but a high of 62 to 66. Could be a little freezing rain here on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. 
Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP news, information, and the arts and messages from community nonprofits. Do you think the Amish sleep in horse-drawn beds? Whatever beds they sleep in, the Amish build beds that are simply beautiful with subtle arts and crafts touches. There's an old Amish proverb, the most important things in your home are people. Maybe so, but those people need a place to sleep. Amish made beds from Talon Furniture. So good looking, so well built. Talon has Amish beds ready for delivery or order in the wood and finish you want. Then we have beds made in Vermont that have all of the craftsmanship of Amish beds made from cherry or maple, but these Vermont built beds are just a touch more elegant in their design. How about an upholstered bed? An upholstered headboard and frame. It's a really nice look and feel. Allen Furniture's upholstered beds come in dozens of fabrics and leathers. In between today and tomorrow, there will be time in bed. Spending that time in a nice bed just feels good. Come to Talon Furniture, a little bed boutique just down the hill from Amherst College. Let's experience fitness together. Hi, this is Jessica. And at Fitness Together, we offer personal trainers and customized workouts either in studio or virtually. Located in Northampton and Amherst, we're here to help you reach your goals, be it weight loss, recovery and rehab, improving health, or simply living well. Getting fit, you'll have the energy to do what you love. Visit us at Fitness Together, Amherst or Northampton and become a part of our community today. Fitness Together, your journey to wellness starts with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are joined by the mayor of Northampton, Jean Louise Scherer. Madam Mayor, thank you so much. Uh, tomorrow is Election Day. Tell us what's at stake for the city. Yes, good morning. Yes, tomorrow is Election Day. Very favorite day of the year. Um, so tomorrow polls are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., um, if you need to know your polling location, please go to the city clerk's uh, page on the on the city website. So that's northamptonma.gov. And actually, if you do northamptonma.gov slash elections, it'll get you right to the page you, you need to be at where you can find your polling location. Um, if you have a mail-in ballot, if you'd requested one before the deadline and you have one that you're still holding on to, you can drop off um, your mail-in ballot, uh, they, you cannot drop them off at polling locations tomorrow, so do not bring it to your polling location, um, but you can bring it to City Hall. There's a drop box outside, which will be um, in use, I think, till about 4.15, but you can walk it inside to the city clerk's office. The doors will be open till 8 p.m. when the polls close, and you can bring it directly to the city clerk until 8 p.m. tomorrow. So again, if you, if you have a mail-in ballot, do not bring it to your polling location, bring it right to City Hall. Um, and thank you to everyone who voted early. We uh, had uh, early voting in City Hall, and it was always, it's fun to have that kind of energy um, in City Hall and have people coming in to, to exercise their right to vote. Um, so thank you for everyone who did that. And I can't wait to see people at the polls tomorrow. Um, I'm happy to talk. So just to tell everyone who's, who they're voting for tomorrow if they don't know. And also you can find sample ballots for each ward, so whatever ward you live in, on the clerk's website as well. Um, but yeah, tomorrow we have all city councilors who are up for election. Um, there is a competitive race for city councilor at large. There are four people running. 
to be city councilor at large. Um, there is uh, an incumbent, Marissa Elkins, is running for re-election. We have Garrett Perry, who's the current Ward 4 city councilor, is running to be an at-large councilor. And then we have um, two others who are on the ballot. That's Roy Martin and uh, former councilor David Murphy. Um, <clears throat> and then all the other uh, council seats are um, unopposed. We have some new folks who are running. So these are not all incumbents who are running. We have some new, some new folks. There's someone... Um, Ward 2 is open and Debbie Patrick Clemmer is, is running for that. Ward 3 is open and Quaverly Rothenberg is running, is on the ballot for that. Ward 4 is open because uh, Councillor Perry is running at large, as I said, so Jeremy Dubbs is on the ballot for that. And then um, the other wards, the incumbents are running again for their seats. So, Mayor, and then, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I want to hear more, but I so want to ask this question. I'm not sure I'm going to okay. get an answer, but Senator Comerford, who we were just talking uh, with, uh, shared with her who she is voting for oh. or has voted for. And I would suspect this question puts you in an awkward position, particularly awkward, but no harm in trying, Bill, I say. Uh, do you want to share with us or would you share with us who you're voting for? Um, nice try, Bill. And, um, I, I, can, I, can, I, I can grovel. I, I know how to do this. <laughs> Please? So I actually, I'm very, um, I'm lucky that almost everyone who, uh, all of these positions that are on the ballot, I get to work with really closely. So obviously I work with the city council very closely. I chair the school committee. Um, I am a, a trustee for um, Smith Vocational Agricultural High School. Um, so I don't sit on the Community Preservation Committee, and um, I also am not, I don't sit on Forbes, um, and I am not an elector under the Oliver Smith well, uh, but all the rest of the folks I do work with closely, and um, I have loved working the last two years with the folks that I've worked with, and I'm delighted to work with um, whoever wins on Tuesday, and I'm really excited to see who that's going to be and to build relationships with, with any new folks that are going to be there. So I'm not, um, I'm not nearly as good a groveler as Bill Newman is uh, mayor, but uh, we were talking to uh, Senator Comerford and, and she uh, went into an homage of local government, how important mm -hmm. local government is now more than ever. She lauded her uh, wife who is uh, on the school committee and is running again on a post. Uh, well, actually why, she's why not. So if I can interrupt yeah. her wife, um, was on the school committee and um, didn't run again in the last term or the last two terms and has decided to come back, ah. which I think is really worth noting. Um, and, and so we're grateful um, that she's willing to come back and serve again on the school committee. But um, uh, the, what I wanted to ask you is uh, about why, why is it really important? Some people might not understand how important it is to go out and vote. What do you say to those people who didn't intend to vote tomorrow? Oh my goodness, it is, I mean, I think it's an absolute sacred right to vote. Um, and, you know, obviously I have a strong um, belief in, in the importance of local government, um, but I, I feel like local government and these positions, these are the things that touch your lives absolutely daily. So, you know, um, whether you have kids in the schools or not, the decisions that are made around our schools are important for our entire community. Your city councilor is, um, in many ways, your direct communication to your local government. They are people who not only live, they have to live in the, you know, the area in which you live, um, but they, uh, they have to, their job is to represent not just their ward, but also the needs of the entire city. And they are the people who you 
see at the grocery store, but also you can contact and talk about any of your concerns or your interests in the city. They are um, your, your direct line um, to, to the things that matter most in our community. So, you know, how we, um, how we spend our budget, how we, uh, the programs that we create, the services that we provide. These are the folks who make critical decisions around this. So um, I think there's nothing more important than voting for, for your local representatives who really um, are, interact day to day to make sure that, that the city runs well and that everyone's um, interests are, are represented and um, expressed to um, not just to the mayor's office um, and to the other parts of the government, but then get expressed with how we um, make decisions around how we use our resources as a community. Mayor, as a practical matter, these off-year elections, the elections that happen for municipal offices uh, and years when there is not a, a race for the U.S. Senate or for president, tend to have very low voter turnout. I'm wondering if you could share with us why Northampton and many other municipalities have these elections off-year and whether you think that's a good idea. That's a really good question. Well, um, you know, we have a, a lot of our um, positions are on two-year terms, and but you're right that we do stagger them. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm for anything that increases voter turnout and increases interest in elections. So um, I'm not entire. I would have to go back and and have conversations with folks um, who who made decisions around how we stagger election years um, to 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 understand the reasoning behind it. But um, I really, particularly these off, um, these just municipal election years that don't have uh, a mayoral election on the ballot, are it's really hard to get people to pay attention and, and really understand how critical they are. Um, so I, I wish that there was more local interest and I feel like we try very hard to, to drum it up. Um, you know, these are incredibly hard positions and I feel like, you know, maybe more than ever, these, um, I'm just so impressed with people who step up to serve their community in this way. It is a hard time. It is a hard time in the world. It's a hard time in this country. Um, and, you know, it's, people can, um, <clears throat> excuse me, really, I think they often think twice about serving in ways that they didn't before because, um, you know, we've seen all sorts of situations across the country and even locally where people um, have been sort of targeted or attacked or um, have had their service sort of questioned. And, and um, these are really tough positions, and I just applaud anyone who takes the step to um, put themselves forward and make themselves vulnerable in this way. You know, it is, it's a vulnerable thing to stand for election and, um, and does the work to get on the ballot. That is just I, I applaud everyone who who's running tomorrow, and I'm just so grateful for their willingness to serve our community. Yeah, shout out to the Daily Hampshire Gazette that has a review of all of the positions that are uh, subject to the election tomorrow in Amherst, East Hampton, and Northampton. So good mm -hmm. for the Gazette for that. I was wondering if you had any sense from being at City Hall while early voting was going on, whether there has been a greater interest in these local races, the, the elections this year, than you might have anticipated, or was the turnout so far for early voting about what you expected? I think it's about what we expected. Um, you know, it's, it's 
funny. Uh, my sense was that there were a lot of people coming in. Whenever I would kind of go up and down the stairs, I would see people. But the the numbers that I heard from the clerk were pretty low. So, you know, we definitely, uh, you know, I'm so glad that we have early voting. I'm so glad we have all these other additional ways to vote. Um, you know, it, we used to sort of have to fight for additional opportunities. Um, it's kind of one of the, I think one of the things that the pandemic helped was um, sort of open up people's minds on, on how we can have more represent, have, how we can get more opportunities for people to participate. Um, but I think uh, there were not a ton of people who came in to vote early, but I'm really grateful to everyone who did. We are speaking with the mayor of Northampton, Gina Louise Shera. When we come back, we're going to ask the mayor about Main Street redesign, and we're going to ask about the police chief leaving. We'll be right back. Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is the community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Local politics is what we do best. Listen to live election night coverage this Tuesday at 8, right after the polls close. Join WHMP's Bill Newman, Dan Torres, Sarah Robertson, and a host of special guests as we break down all the local elections as the results come in. Follow all the local elections right here on WHMP. Using WIC is easier than ever. Now you can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. WIC helps families learn to shop for nutritious foods and offers resources like online nutrition education and an app to make shopping easier. Visit us online at mass.gov WIC to find out if you qualify. This message is brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Scherer. Mayor, I would like to ask you about the police chief, Jody Casper, leaving. Uh, a sad day for Northampton, I believe, notwithstanding, as I've said many times on the show, I don't think anyone has had many public disagreements with the chief as I have, and I remain and have remained a big supporter of the chief 
as being someone who has uh, led the department and been a really good leader in Northampton, not, notwithstanding our substantive disagreements on a couple of policy issues. Uh, I'm really disturbed that she is leaving. I know that you have appointed an interim. So tell us where all that stands. Sure. So I, I join you in being really sad that uh, Chief Casper has decided to um, leave after 25 years. So she's served our community for 25 years. Um, so her last day as chief will be actually January 1st, 2024. Um, I'm extremely grateful to her for her, her leadership, all of her work for 25 years, as I said, but for a very thoughtful leadership as chief. Um, and so, yes, we will be uh, we are starting to begin a formal search for a new police chief. Um, as you said, I have I've designated Captain John Cartledge as the interim chief of police, um, and he'll serve in that role while the search is being conducted. Um, so he will take that position when when Chief Casper uh, leaves on January first. Um, and so uh, Captain Cartledge has also served in the Northampton Police Department for a very long time since 1995. Um, he's a, a HAMP native and went to HAMP High, um, and he has served and risen through every rank of NPD um, to his current position, which is the senior captain and captain of administration um, for Northampton Police Department. So he and the chief have worked very closely together for many, many years. Um, and as the senior captain, he's very versed in all parts of these jobs. So I'm, I'm grateful that he's willing to serve as, um, as interim as we conduct a search. So I am um, learning a lot about uh, searches for police chiefs. Um, having actually just gone through a search for um, a school superintendent, I would say it's probably, this is most analogous to that kind of search. It, it's a very significant undertaking. Um, well, so, let me interrupt and say, if you do as, do as well in the search for the police chief as you did in the search for the new school superintendent, you will be a, on a really fabulous trajectory for the city. But but I just have a question in that regard. I know that you're going to hire a consultant. You intend to issue a request for proposals for a consulting firm. Why do we need a consulting firm to search for a police chief? So this is going to be a national search, um, you know, similar to a superintendent. It's, um, it, this is how, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm learning about this process. You, you need, um, a, you need a, uh, an organization that's sort of skilled in, in finding, matching, um, potential candidates with the community, right? So there's the culture of the community that's important. And then you need people, someone who has, you know, the right experience, um, that will fit all the qualifications that we need. And, um, it's, you know, I, I think we are going to have to look far and wide to find someone who could possibly replace Chief Casper. Um, this is not necessarily something where we can just sort of recruit locally. Um, this is also a really tough time. You know, we've talked about this a, a bit. It's a tough time um, getting people who are interested in serving um, in in police departments in general. But you know, Chief is obviously a very hard job, and and this will be very, um, this is a really significant process and we're gonna have to take a lot of care and thoughtful deliberation to find the right candidate. Um, and so we wanna make sure that we can recruit the best pool of candidates that will fit our city culture and match our priorities and um, also are people who are excellent professionals and, and have all of the qualifications that are needed. Um, so 
so yes, there are, uh, we will be putting out an RFP for um, consulting firms who have this area of expertise. How long do you project this process will take? How, when will we have a new permanent police chief? Um, I'm not sure that I can give you that, um, that information yet. You know, we are just, I just received Chief Casper's resignation um, at the end of last week, and um, I am doing research in what other communities are doing. You know, there, there are um, quite a few other communities, some locals, some across the state who have been going through searches, so I need to look at their timelines. Um, but it will be as short or long as it needs to be to make sure that we get the right person to fit this job. I don't mean to put him or you in an awkward position, but I really feel the necessity to ask, do you think that Captain Cartledge will be one of the candidates who might apply for this position? I don't know. I, it will be up to him whether he, he's interested in, in pursuing that or not, but I'm so grateful that he's willing to be interim. Let's turn to another topic, uh, never far from uh, your desk, I am sure, Mayor, and that is the Main Street redesign. From your perspective, where does this stand? Yes, my one of my favorite things to talk about, truly. Um, as you all know, this is a project I'm extremely excited about. So where it stands is, you know, as you know, we've passed the 25% mark with, um, with Mass Department of Transportation. And stop there for um, one second. What does that mean? We passed the 25% mark. So the design, we have selected a design and it is, and we have submitted it to MassDOT and that design is moving, has moved forward. So we went through a very extensive process um, to choose designs. Uh, we, there were four designs that were presented by Tool, which is the, the firm that we're working with. Um, and those designs were based on um, extensive community in input, people expressing what they wanted out of Main Street, plus, um, you know, ensuring that we are addressing the critical things that need to be addressed with this redesign. So uh, safety primarily, and then also um, along with safety, accessibility. Um, so creating um, a safer, more um, uh, Americans with Disability Act compliance spaces and spaces that work for everybody who uses um, our downtown. So um, those designs were uh, vetted and through a long public process, they were, um, each design was shown to the community and then they were, um, they were measured against the priorities and uh, the design that we all know was chosen and has moved and so it was put forward with hundreds of thousands actually of pages of um, design standards and, and um, reporting to Mass Department of Transportation. And uh, we had a, a public hearing back in April. So, um, so that is where we are at this point. And we are, um, you know, moving forward to the next phase. And actually the next phase is um, one that I'm really excited about and have started to have meetings with um, the, the Chamber of Commerce and with the Downtown Northampton Association and with other business leaders. Um, around um, how we support the community during the construction phase. So there are a lot of exciting ideas that are being created um, and talked about, and we will figure out how we're all going to pull together as a community. And we, um, that sort of the next thing is we will start to get information from MassDOT on the phasing of construction. So this will be construction will be done not all at once. Um, you know, it's not like we open up Main Street and then it's inaccessible for 
for months at a time. It's done in sections, um, and as much as possible, you, you allow travel during those times. And so uh, my goal is to create all sorts of um, programs and events to support the sections that are being most affected at the time so that Mayor, they're being affected. Mayor, this is Dan. Quick question as we wrap up. Um, why can't we do a trial run again uh, of, of some of the designs? I know you've answered that before, but can you just give me a, a 20 seconds answer on sure. that? I've, I've just answered it a few thousand times. Um, so we can't do a trial run because this is a very extensive project. It's almost a, a half mile long. It involves multiple intersections. It involves changes in road geometry. It involves changes in sidewalk width. It involves changes in um, intersections and timing intervals for traffic lights. Um, it, it has so many components that there would be no way to fully sort of exercise the plan um, without doing it and without having it cost an ex a an huge amount of money and, and okay. tons of construction time to just even do the trial. We leave it there. Mayor Shara, thanks so very much. Want to make a difference in a big way? Nearly 200 children in Hampshire County are on a waiting list to be matched with adult mentors called BIGS. Children who are matched with mentors through Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County do better in school, report higher self-confidence, and have better relationships with peers. Start something. Call 413-259-3345 and volunteer or donate to Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. E hablamos español. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. Hour presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. President Trump, former President Trump, arrived at court in New York City this past hour to testify at his civil fraud trial. He's just spoken to reporters outside the courtroom. It's a very sad situation for our country. We shouldn't have this. This is for third world countries. And you know, it's very unfair. It's very unfair. But in the meantime, the people of the country understand it. They see it. And like Mr. Trump called New York's Democratic State Attorney General Letitia James, who brought the case, racist. He claimed she's declared nothing less than political warfare. A new phase of the Israel-Hamas war could begin shortly in Gaza City. Israeli military officials say they expect to enter within the next 48 hours for a fight below ground. CBS's Doug Williams reports from Tel Aviv. In those compounds are observation posts. That's where they train Hamas militants. That's um, also part of where the entrances are to these underground tunnels. That's the primary concern for the IDF at this moment is the casualties they've seen in terms of Israeli soldiers and the attacks coming from underground. Communications have been cut across northern and southern parts of Gaza for the third time since the war began. Pope Francis told European rabbis today he was under the weather but met with them anyway at the Vatican to speak out against anti-Semitism, war and terrorism. The 86-year-old 
told the rabbis he was too sick to read his speech, but gave them copies to read on their own. A spokesman says the Pope has a bit of a cold. The father of an 11-year-old boy killed in a drive-by shooting near a playground in Cincinnati is urging the public to help in the search for a suspect. How many people have to bury their kids, their babies, their loved ones? I'm just asking anybody that know anything to come forward, please. Police say someone fired 22 shots into a crowd of young people Friday night. Many women who managed to break through glass ceilings may wind up falling off glass cliffs. An analysis of companies listed on 12 global stock exchanges shows that since 2018, women have lasted an average of 5.2 years as chief executives compared to 8.1 years for men. The firm behind the study says that may be evidence for the existence of a so-called glass cliff, the idea that women leaders are set up to fail. Vicki Barker, CBS News, London. A man named Musk is taking the wraps off his AI startup. CBS's Matt Piper. Elon Musk has just launched a new artificial intelligence venture named Grok. He posted a side-by-side comparison Sunday of Grok answering a question versus another AI bot, which he says had less current information. Dow up 14. This is CBS News. Make the hiring process work for you. With Indeed's end-to-end hiring solution, you can attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Start at Indeed.com slash credit. My brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, SelectQuote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, call SelectQuote at 1-800-330-1991. That's 1-800-330-1991. Or go to SelectQuote.com. That's 1-800-330-1991. Select quote. We shop. You save. Full details on example policies at selectquote.com slash commercials. We're hearing from a key defendant in another case. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Captain John Cartledge will lead the Northampton Police Department in the interim while the search for a permanent chief gets underway. Cartilage is a Northampton native and is currently the captain of administration at NPD. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera made the announcement and said she plans to file a formal request for a proposal to find a consulting firm to handle the recruitment process. Chief Jody Casper is leaving to become the police chief in Nantucket. Election day is tomorrow in many Western Mass communities. Voters in Northampton, Greenfield, Amherst, East Hampton, and elsewhere will be electing new counselors, school committee members, and other contested seats to their municipal governments. A controversy is also brewing in Springfield, where mayoral candidate and city councilor Justin Hurst is being accused of having his associates pay people $10 to vote for him. Hurst is denying the allegations, calling them a smear tactic by incumbent Mayor Dominic Sarno's campaign. But in sworn statements, Springfield election workers have said they saw Hurst's vehicle drop off people at the polling place and an associate of his hand money to voters upon leaving the building. Police officers in Hatfield, Sunderland, and Waitley will soon begin responding to some calls in partnership with mental health professionals. The co-responding social workers will be paid for by a grant from the State Department of Mental Health given to the Sunderland Police Department. The Sunderland Police will share the service with the neighboring communities in partnership with the nonprofit Clinical and Support Options, also known as CSO. 
Sun cloud mixed today, cool with a high of 48 to 52. Showers and drizzle developing mid-evening tonight, an overnight low of 40 to 46. Mild tomorrow, mixture of sun and clouds, slight chance for a morning shower, but a high of 62 to 66. Could be a little freezing rain here on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Monday is all I hoped it would be. I'm Buzz Eisenberg on Talk to Talk. And I'm Bill Newman. And Monday is first Monday, and it's always such a pleasure to have constitutional law professor and scholar Bruce Miller with us to talk about, well, there's always something to talk about, it seems. Uh, Bruce, I'm hearing uh, some really interesting sounds coming from our sister state of Colorado. What's going on there? Indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, this is, a, this is a topic we talked about a couple of months ago, more in the abstract, and now it's real. And that is whether um, our former president and probable presidential candidate is an insurrectionist and whether that uh, bars him uh, from holding the office of the presidency should he be elected to it. Now, I'm getting some vague memory here that you and Bill both felt that this wasn't, uh, it was sort of a red herring of an issue, and I was feeling, hmm, I don't know, this sort of makes sense to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, when we talked about it before, I think uh, Bill and I were, were, were both dubious about how effective this argument could be, but now we have a trial that's just been completed in, uh, in, in Colorado, no ruling yet, but the trial wound up on Friday, and, and the judge pretty clearly indicated that she was prepared to rule on the merits of whether uh, former President Trump's actions in and around January the 6th amounted to uh, a, a, an act of insurrection that would disqualify him from holding federal office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So could you once again describe for us what Section 3 says? Section 3 of the, of the 14th Amendment uh, precludes anyone from holding any office of the United States who, if they have taken a previous oath to support the Constitution, um, engages in an insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution. And what was the context in which the 14th Amendment was written? That, that context was, was, you know, apt in my view. This was after the Civil War. Um, the former slaveholding class was as fast as they could running for office uh, when the states were restored to the Union uh, in order to become senators and representatives um, and, and to do as much as they could to restore the old regime. Um, and uh, this was the Reconstruction Congress's answer to that. They were all insurrectionists. And uh, Section 3 was designed successfully to prevent them from seeking and holding federal office. And the nature of the insurrection was, of course, the Civil War uh, it's, itself. So that was the context. And, and the analogy is that uh, January the 6th, although nothing on the scale of the Civil War, uh, was, was the same sort of effort uh, to overthrow uh, our, our constitutional democracy. 
So Bruce Miller, a constitutional law expert, professor, professor emeritus of Western New England University School of Law, longtime teacher and regular with us to help explain complicated issues and make them accessible. What I want to know is how it is that a state gets to determine who's on the ballot for president. Isn't that a national uh, issue? Why is it state by state? Bill, great, great question. Um, uh, the Constitution has always given the primary power uh, to determine the method of holding federal elections, including presidential elections, to the state legislatures. And so the states do have a power to decide how to conduct their presidential elections. Now, if that sounds like a little bit of a dodge, it is, because that's not something that says that the state legislatures or the state secretaries of state have a legitimate power to decide who is an insurrectionist. And in, 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 in effect, the result of, of, the, uh, uh, if it, of, of this trial, if the judge dis rules for the plaintiffs and decides that Trump can't stand, will be an order to the Secretary of State of Colorado to take him off the ballot. And the implications of this are huge because it would mean that secretaries of state are going to be, at least in Colorado and conceivably in other states if the same thing happens, directed by judges to make decisions on who is an insurrectionist and who isn't. And that kind of power in the office of a Secretary of State remarkably, I think, unsuited to making those sorts of decisions, ought to at least be troubling. The other possibility is that state legislatures would start deciding who is an insurrectionist. And, and so your question, Bill, is a good one. And it's put front and center by at least what this case um, portends. And the, and the danger there is, and this is Dan, the danger there is quite simply somebody from, uh, let's say, the state of Alabama could then decide as the Secretary of State say, hey, I don't like the Democrats on, on this candidate. I think they're insurrectionists. Let's move them off. And then you guarantee that one party will win, pretty uh, much. Well, yeah, and, and where something, I mean, imagine, uh, uh, you know, my, my, my dream twice in a row was that uh, Bernie Sanders was the Democratic presidential candidate. I could see on this theory secretaries of state of various states deciding because of positions he has publicly taken, oh my gosh, this guy is, is uh, an insurrectionist. Right. Now, this isn't unthinkable. Can I but, ask you a quick sure. follow-up on that? Sure. Sorry. sorry. Absolutely. But can the, will the Supreme Court all have the ultimate say on this because well, they are the highest court of the federal it, system? It, 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 it Possibly, but, but not clearly. One of the odd things about, about the, the, the Supreme Court's role here is it depends on how the case gets to them. Um, in the Colorado case, for example, if Trump loses and if the Colorado Supreme Court eventually decides that Trump can't stand, Trump can seek review in the Supreme Court at that point because he will have been injured. There will be a federal case or controversy at that point. He'll be denied the ability to run. There will be a question of federal law, that is, what is the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? Supreme Court will take that case and decide it. So if Trump loses, the Supreme Court will review it. Uh, if, 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 if Trump prevails, 
there's a very, very difficult question of standing to sue. Will the challengers be able to get to the Supreme, to Supreme Court, Court if they want to? Because it's not clear to me that under federal standing to sue law, they would be viewed as but, injured parties. But let's let's take that example of the uh, the federal yeah. Supreme Court yep. um, deciding yes, you must have Trump's name on yes. your ballot. Yes, is that allowed? Given that the state of Colorado is the state that ultimately uh, runs its well, own well, elections, well, what they what they it, it would all depend on the ground on which the Supreme Court made that kind of a decision. They, they might decide, for the kinds of reasons we've been talking about, that uh, Colorado officials do not have a role to play in deciding insurrection questions. Even in their own state. Even elections. in their own state. That's a possibility. I, uh, another possibility, and this one seems to me to be of greater likelihood, for the first time, uh, first time I've ever looked at this part of it, the 20th Amendment uh, to the Constitution provides uh, that in the event that a president-elect is not qualified to be the president, that the vice president-elect shall become the president. This uh, a provision would kick in in the event that Trump and his running mate were elected. Um, and and it, Congress is, is given the power in the 20th Amendment to make that determination. If both of them are disqualified, as let's say as insurrectionists, then Congress decides under the 20th Amendment what to do next. Uh, there is an argument to be made that the combination of the 20th Amendment providing a way of resolving a question like this for presidents elect and the impeachment clauses of the Constitution, which provide an avenue for Congress to resolve it in the case of a sitting president, make this whole question of insurrection what we call in constitutional law a political question. Not political in the sense of just politically controversial, but political in the sense that the power to decide it is given to another branch besides the courts. Bruce this is another possibility. We're deep in weeds here. Well, and nobody knows how we get out. Well, I, I'd like you to stay here for a moment and, and go back to Dan's question. Yeah. Which is that if the state of Colorado yep. were to, through its state procedures, yep. uh, remove or not place on the ballot Donald Trump's name, yep. why isn't that same process available to Republicans in Georgia to say, we know, we know, we have lots of evidence about what Biden did. He's an insurrectionist in our good faith judgment, and therefore Biden can't be on the ballot. I, I, uh, your, your point's well taken. There, I, there's, not, uh, there's not a distinction. And this is, this is a major problem with, with the theory, is the power that it would grant to state officials who aren't even judges to make uh, decisions uh, about whether or not someone's political speech amounts or doesn't amount to an insurrection. Now, Congress could take care of all of this. And this is where this idea of a self-executing amendment comes in. If Congress passed a law that granted opposing candidates or some class of voters um, or some political organizations a right to sue to enforce the anti-insurrection clause, we would then have a vehicle for getting these issues in front of a federal court 
so that a federal court could make a decision on whether or not uh, a particular presidential candidate or sitting president was an insurrectionist. But but uh, we know what the chances are of Congress right. passing Congress, something like that. It isn't going to happen. Well, it isn't going to happen, but it may be the place where this issue ultimately resides and has to be resolved because the 14th Amendment and its disqualification for insurrectionists to hold a federal office does have, the 14th Amendment does have a specific provision. Absolutely. Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. They have the authority they have to the, decide. They have the authority, but in many instances, even if Congress has not exercised the authority, that is, even if Congress has not passed some kind of authorizing statute, the Equal Protection Clause can be sued on, the Due Process Clause can be sued on. We have all kinds of examples where without an authorizing provision, the 14th Amendment can be enforced. The problem here is that the ways of enforcing it through state judicial processes lead to these unintended and at least potentially dangerous consequences. You know, this is reminiscent. Actually, Bill and I had a, a disagreement when uh, the district attorney was here on uh, last week. And the, the question arose in the context of the arrests at Whitmore administration of UMass yeah, right. protesters who were, were sitting in. And I asked the district attorney whether or not their motivations uh, for their protest ought to be considered before he decides whether or not to prosecute or how vigorously to prosecute. He said no, and Bill made a point that's analogous to the ones that you're, you and Bill are making right now, which is that opens the door for other people to let their subjective view of the activity that was engaged in uh, rule the day with respect to a prosecution and whether it should continue. I have, I mean, that January 6th was an attempted insurrection. It was. It threatened our democracy. It was, it was horrific. And yes. even though we might be opening the door a bit for yep. future yep. abuses of the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, I, I just don't want to let it vest as a legitimate expression of protest when it endangered our entire democratic scheme. Yeah, yeah. and, and I, you know, I feel that too. And and uh, I'm I'm not making an argument that Section Three is uh, unenforceable. What I'm trying to suggest is that is that maybe our best bet for enforcing it is not through the state courts. That the state courts are uh, they can make decisions on insurrection, but that's going to just devolve it back to the state legislatures or to the state executive branch. And it's going to be reviewable in the Supreme Court only to favor Trump. That is, a state court ruling will be if it's against Trump, the Supreme Court will take it up. If it's in favor of Trump, the Supreme Court won't touch it because there won't be any standing. It's just a, a way of trying to do this that is so likely not to work. So what could we do? Well, I kind of like this 20th Amendment argument. I know I know that's risky and it waits a, uh, waits a long time, but uh, you know the new the new Congress in in 2025 can uh, decide that uh, the elected president is indeed not qualified. We have lots of precedents that say that each branch decides the qualifications of its of its members, or that the Constitution can provide how the qualifications of members. 
are going to be determined and that maybe the 20th Amendment is the way to go. I like the idea of fighting this out in Congress better than I do counting on the Trump Supreme Court ultimately to enforce these values. Monday, Monday. So good to me. It brings us first Monday with Bruce Miller. Always good to hear a little Laurel Canyon music. (laughs) We'll be right back with Bruce Miller. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. This week's Shop Tuesday is Tavern on the Hill. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Tavern on the Hill releases gift certificates for their restaurant on Mount Tom. Tavern on the Hill, barbecue done slow over native oak, brisket, ribs, and pulled pork, plus Tavern signature salmon, pumpkin tortillaki, and big deck with a view of the Berkshire foothills. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Tavern on the Hill on Mount Tom, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Professor Emeritus from uh, uh, Western New England University School of Law and constitutional expert, Bruce Miller. Uh, Bruce, tomorrow there's going to be an important gun case argued before the United States Supreme Court. Can you tell us what that case is about? Yes, this uh, case, the, the Rahimi case, uh, involves, and, and, to, and to just read the, the facts suggests how important and how really chilling this case is. Uh, in, in 2019, Zaki Rahimi physically assaulted his girlfriend in a parking lot in Texas and told her that if she reported the incident, he would kill her. She eventually got a Texas civil court to issue a domestic restraining order. That brought Rahimi within the sights 
1994 federal statute that says that anybody with a domestic violence restraining order is barred from possessing or purchasing firearms. Uh, Rahimi nevertheless uh, uh, possessed and, and used, shot an AR-15 assault rifle into someone's home uh, who was a drug customer of his and uh, had, had made a number of threats with that, with that gun. Rahimi was convicted. He is now challenging that conviction on the ground that the federal law violates the Second Amendment. Yikes. And the reason it violates the Second Amendment is, uh, as far as Rahimi's lawyers are concerned, that uh, the Supreme Court has held that the Second Amendment permits the federal government to regulate firearms only in situations that were known to the framers of the Constitution in the late 1780s. That is, if a particular gun restraint was unknown at the time of the adoption of the Bill of Rights, it forever becomes uh, an impermissible ground for interfering with firearms rights. And guess what? Although domestic violence certainly existed in the late 1780s, uh, it was not a recognized category of offense in our law. And so for that reason, since it wasn't recognized as a problem in 1787 or 1789, it can't be recognized as a problem today. Society as it was perceived back then is frozen forever in time by our Constitution, according to this theory. This is a version of constitutional originalism that is so far beyond any other that has ever been advanced that it would completely transform the idea that we even have a Constitution. I think there's a different aspect of the lawlessness of the Supreme Court that's at play here, which is that Justice Thomas says we have to decide based on a historical an analog. Is there something comparable? And the way we know if it's comparable, something that existed at the time the Constitution was ratified, the way we can absolutely know every time is we ask Justice Thomas because he knows it when he sees it. Everyone else, you're on your own. But Justice Thomas, he gets to decide. I mean, it is lawlessness at an apex. I think you're right about that. This is, this is of course, a problem with all, all the different versions of originalism is they tend to be conversation stoppers rather than conversation starters. It just turns out that what's consistent with the original intent is precisely what the originalist judge today happens to think is a good idea. And Thomas is an extremely good example of this. But, but the concept here, you know, originalism as a method of constitutional interpretation is a pretty recent invention. The Federalist Society thought it up as an answer to the Warren Court decisions that they didn't like in the early 1980s. And its rationale was to curb the federal courts from, uh, uh, from expanding rights, to be honest. Expanding rights. I, w I was going to say interpreting the Liberty Clause of the Constitution to provide for substantive rights. They didn't like that because it protected abortion rights and it protected contraception rights and it protected women's rights and it provided uh, a pro prohibition against separate but equal, all of that. We often hear the term uh, original intent. 
original intent, original understanding, we hear them both. When it's used to say you should not invalidate what the government does because of your conception court of individual rights, it is at least, it's a terrible idea, but it is at least serving majoritarian uh, decisions, that is, decisions that have been made politically. And there is an argument to be made, uh, I don't agree with it, but there's an argument to be made that the people ought to decide controversial questions, not the judges. But here, what originalism is doing is it is, it is being used to keep the people from solving problems through the political process. Thou shalt not address gun violence, is what these decisions say. Um, uh, Chief Justice Marshall, in probably the, our most important constitutional decision, McCulloch against Maryland in 1815, famously said, it is a constitution we are expounding. It is, sets the broad outlines for government power, um, and it is designed to be adaptable to meet the various crises that will confront the country. What Thomas and the other justices here are doing is denying that the Constitution does that important thing. We can't have a Constitution if it does not let us address the problems that we face today. Well, Potter Stewart, former justice, famously said about uh, obscenity, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it, which, of course, led to a lot of ridicule. The only way to know if something is constitutionally protected is to ask Justice Potter Stewart. Well, it's true. In this instance, what on the gun case on Rahimi, what the Supreme Court could say, what Thomas could say is, I know a historic analog when I see it. And back at the time of the founding of the country, there was something called sureties to keep the peace. And that's really close. And therefore, somehow we can, I decide this particular aspect, in this particular limited case, this guy can have his guns taken away. Although in 99.999% of the cases, no, you can't. So he could come out saying, with the headline saying, just justices do something reasonable, or what they're doing is really putting a gun, a rifle, in everyone's hands. And and in in some ways, that would be worse, be good for this case, but it would reinforce this whole um, ass-backwards way of looking at how you do constitutional interpretation, because it would say what you need is a precise historical analogy, not in order to protect a right, but in order to allow Congress to address a contemporary problem that no one foresaw or, or in many cases couldn't have been expected to foresee. So this is essentially a crippling of our politics. And if there is anything our Constitution is for, it is designed to allow we, the people, together through concerted political action, to take steps to create a more perfect union. And what the, uh, uh, the six uh, on the court are, are up to in this area at least is, is ending that. I think the thing to watch for tomorrow is what kinds of questions get asked by Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, uh, because they have not completely bought into this uh, method uh, that Thomas and Alito have uh, suggested of, of reading uh, the Second Amendment and congressional power. Uh, I think this, this case is, is one that could still go either way. It's a really important case, and uh, we'll all be watching it and, and to see whether we have a living constitution or not. Bruce Miller, yeah. thank you so much. It's always, I, I love being in the studio with you and learning. Great time. Thank you.
Thank you. We're going to be right back with Megan Zinn and okay. Crystal Maldonado right after this. Well, you praise him, then you thank him till you reach the by and by. Not one hundreds at the track. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Captain John Cartledge will lead the Northampton Police Department in the interim while the search for a permanent chief gets underway. Cartledge is a Northampton native and is currently the captain of administration at NPD. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera made the announcement and said she plans to file a formal request for a proposal to find a consulting firm to handle the recruitment process. Chief Jody Casper is leaving to become the police chief in Nantucket. Election day is tomorrow in many Western Mass communities. Voters in Northampton, Greenfield, Amherst, East Hampton, and elsewhere will be electing new councilors, school committee members, and other contested seats to their municipal governments. A controversy is also brewing in Springfield, where mayoral candidate and city councilor Justin Hurst is being accused of having his associates pay people $10 to vote for him. Hurst is denying the allegations, calling them a smear tactic by incumbent Mayor Dominic Sarno's campaign. But in sworn statements, Springfield election workers have said they saw Hurst's vehicle drop off people at the polling place and an associate of his hand money to voters upon leaving the building. Police officers in Hatfield, Sunderland, and Waitley will soon begin responding to some calls in partnership with mental health professionals. The co-responding social workers will be paid for by a grant from the State Department of Mental Health given to the Sunderland Police Department. The Sunderland Police will share the service with the neighboring communities in partnership with the nonprofit Clinical and Support Options, also known as CSO. Suncloud mixed today, cool with a high of 48 to 52. Showers and drizzle developing mid-evening tonight, an overnight low of 40 to 46. Mild tomorrow, mixture of sun and clouds, slight chance for a morning shower, but a high of 62 to 66. Could be a little freezing rain here on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Here's another remarkable success story from QC Kinetics. This one from Chad, who hurt his knee at the gym one day, and it just kept on hurting for months. From my high school football and wrestling days, I already had a little bit of damage in there, but this just sent it over the edge. Chad tried traditional treatments with no improvement when he turned to the non-surgical regenerative treatments at QC Kinetics. It was really fascinating how they did their work, and the science behind it was very intriguing, and it works. Extracting the cure out of my own body blew my mind. It's like I'm brand new again. It was fantastic. That's because the QC Kinetics natural biologic treatments use your body's own healing power to restore damaged tissue in your hips, shoulders, back, and knees, providing long-lasting relief. Now I'm back at the gym. I'm 100% feeling great. If you're tired of suffering with pain from arthritis or injury, call QC Kinetics now for a free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. The person you're sleeping with, you know things about them that maybe you shouldn't know. Like... They got up last night at 3 and went down to the kitchen. How do you know? You have one of those mattresses that, well, let's just say you know things you really don't need to know. Sleep on a Theralux mattress from Talon Furniture. Wait, Theralux? What happened? All Talon Furniture ever talks about is therapeutic mattresses. Well, Theralux is simply Therapeutic's high-end mattress. What makes it high-end? It's a cooling mattress. If you're not sure what cooling mattresses are, we'll show you. 
a Theralux mattress has a 20-year warranty and a really high coil count, which means if the person you're sleeping with is tossing and turning or gets up at 3 a.m., you won't even know. And that's the way a good night's sleep ought to go, right? Therapeutic, and now Theralux. Come to Talon Furniture just down the hill from Amherst College. Just don't come at 3 a.m. We'll be sound asleep. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And it is Monday. It is time for Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. Megan, you have a special guest today. I do. I have a local young adult writer. I'm very excited to talk to uh, Crystal Maldonado. Um, uh, welcome, Crystal. Hi. Thanks, Megan. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk to you and learn more about uh, your work. So Crystal is based here in Western Mass, um, and she is the author of the young adult novel Fat Chance Charlie Vega and No Filter and Other Lies. And her newest book is The Fall of Wit Rivera. And Crystal will be at Odyssey Bookshop to talk about The Fall of Wit Rivera on Tuesday, tomorrow, November 7th at 7 p.m. And you can find out more info on the uh, Odyssey Books website, odysseybks.com. All right, so um, Crystal, tell us about The Fall of Wit Rivera, your new young adult novel. Yeah, so this is, like you said, my third young adult novel. Um, I like to say that I write rom-coms for fat brown girls. So this would <laughs> fall into that category. Mm -hmm. um, so it follows the story of a 17-year-old girl named Wit, who is a bit of a perfectionist. And she's coming off this terrible summer where nothing has gone right for her. She's just gotten diagnosed with a chronic illness called polycystic ovarian syndrome that she's sort of hiding from everyone in her life. And she's decided she's going to make fall so much better because that's her favorite season. So she um, vows to make her school's homecoming dance amazing. And then of course gets paired up with her ex-boyfriend in order to have to plan the whole thing. And oh no, her ex-boyfriend is actually kind of cute. So, <laughs> so hijinks and lots of romance ensues. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, can you read us a selection? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so I'm just going to read a little excerpt from chapter one and kind of give mm -hmm. you a sense for the voice and what we're dealing with. So okay. chapter one goes, what is it about fall that makes me so basic? Well before the sticky summer days have cooled, I'm salivating over leaf peeping and farmer's markets and cider tastings. At the stroke of midnight on the eve of autumn, I turn into an apple picking, pumpkin spice craving, boot and oversized sweater wearing fanatic. Autumn is when my sleepy Massachusetts town sheds its old life. The leaves become a symphony of reds, oranges, and golds, then let go. I love the colors, the crisp breeze, the pumpkin patches, the bonfires, the delicious scent of apple cinnamon, the melody the trees make when they rustle in the wind. Fall is catharsis. It's paying tribute to what was while making room for what's to come. It's possibility wrapped in a crimson bow. At this time of year, everything feels hopeful. And right now, I could use a little hope because my summer kind of sucked. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic intro. I'm clearly written by somebody who lives in Western Massachusetts. <laughs> Thank you. The, one, the wonder that is fall. So tell me, um, what sparked the idea for the fall of Whitman Rivera and for this plot? Yeah, so funny enough, I was actually sitting in a parking lot holding on to my pumpkin spice coffee <laughs> while I was, <laughs> it was raining, the trees had all changed, and I was actually waiting for my daughter to get dismissed from daycare like her I just was waiting for the day to end and I was just like sipping my drink thinking man I would love to write a book 
or read a book that kind of embodies all this coziness and all of the, I don't know, the joy that I think autumn brings mm -hmm. for a lot of people, especially in New England and especially in like our little pocket of Western Mass. Um, and so I started thinking, well, how would I, how would I do that, right? Like, how would I make this into a story that's not just these characters are going in like apple picking, which is fun, but not quite a plot, right? Like it's not exactly a story. Um, so I pulled on some elements of just thinking about, okay, well, what about some romance and what would that look like? Um, and then I usually pull parts of my own life and use mm -hmm. those in books as well. And so that was sort of where the backdrop of wit, um, dealing with this chronic illness sort of came about as well. Great, right, yeah. Um, and why, why are you drawn to young adult, to writing young adult fiction, which has been your, your primary um, yeah. form of writing? I love young adult books as a reader. So selfishly, mm -hmm. I kind of am writing what I enjoy <laughs> reading. Okay. But I also think that um, being a teenager is so difficult and underappreciated. Um, it's, we all go through it. We all struggle through it. I mean, to varying degrees. And I also think there's this like beautiful um, universal experience to it all, right? It's this time in our life when we're wanting to do so much, we're wanting to be independent, we want to do big things and we wanna feel like we're adults, but at the same time, life doesn't want us to feel that way. We almost have no autonomy. We, we have curfews to deal <laughs> with and families and parents and all of that. And so um, I think it, offers this ability to explore a lot of themes that are just so central to being a human and figuring out who you are mm -hmm. and who you want to be. Um, and then for my characters, there's also, you know, exploring self-identity and where do I fit in this world and what does that look like? Um, and so I, I do find writing for teens gets, you get to the heart of all of that. And it's nice to have those conversations with teen readers and hopefully yeah. they get something out of these books that they weren't expecting, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's a time of so much potential. Um, yeah. What were your favorite books as a young adult or your favorite young adult books now? Oh, God, I had a million growing up. I was a big Sarah Dessen fan. So she mm -hmm. wrote a lot of stories just like about romance, but also sadness. And I loved all of those mm -hmm. books. Um, and I'm also currently a huge fan of Julie Murphy, um, who was the author of Dumplin', which was made mm -hmm. into a Netflix movie. So if you have Netflix, you can watch the, the movie instead. Um, but I love all, I love stories that feel very voicey and very, um, they, very fun. And I love ones that make me laugh. I, even as an adult, mm -hmm. I still read these young adult books and have a, have a good time. <laughs> I love that. Um, and you're, um, your day job is in um, is in higher ed marketing, I know that, um, and we cross paths in that world. And um, but you're at where you're also um, communicating to a young adult audience for the most part, and their parents or their 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 guardians. Do you find overlapping skills? Do you find these two parts of your life inform each other? I do actually. I think because I am so fascinated by this time period in one's mm -hmm. life when you're on the cusp of so much that I try to bring that kind of interest to all of the posts that I'm making, the, the articles I'm writing, the press releases, the social media postings, um, where I'm trying to create this feeling of like mutual respect and understanding. And I know that what I'm putting out there for UMass Amherst, right, is 
is reaching this same kind of audience that I'm putting out there for these stories and that there is a lot of pressure to like pick the right major, to pick the right school, to mm -hmm. decide forever, even though that's not what you're deciding, but it feels like that's what you're deciding. You're like, I have one opportunity to choose the rest of my life. And I think um, I try to pay, you know, pay tribute to how big that feels. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm talking to Crystal Maldonado right now, uh, the author of The Fall of Wit Rivera. And Crystal will be at Odyssey Bookshop to talk about The Fall of Wit Rivera on Tuesday, November 7th at 7 p.m. And um, we'll uh, take a break and talk more afterwards. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Local politics is what we do best. Listen to live election night coverage this Tuesday at 8, right after the polls close. Join WHMP's Bill Newman, Dan Torres, Sarah Robertson, and a host of special guests as we break down all the local elections as the results come in. Follow all the local elections right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. If they ask me, I could write a book. I think that was a needed day. Oh, day that was uh, just terrific. How how to write a book? Well, Megan Zinn is talking to Crystal Maldonado about uh, her book, um, which is the Fall of Wit Rivera. Is that right? That's right. You got it. Yes. That's what we're here for. Um, so, so um, Crystal, um, the the in the book. Um, uh, Wit has a lovely relationship with her grandmother, and um, and I know it's, it's something mentioned by some of the reviewers and such. Why was that? What what's the importance in um, in that relationship to you and in in the story? 
for me, I was actually raised by my maternal grandparents. I lived in their house growing up and they played such an important role in my life and also in encouraging me to become an author and, you know, pursue my passion. And so um, I like to explore you know, different fi family dynamics through these stories, especially because we're reaching teen readers. And I think it's become more socially acceptable to talk about mm -hmm. how families don't all look the same. So yeah. Wit and her grandma, who she calls Abuela, have this very special relationship. They're, they really clearly admire each other, um, but there's also a really deep respect there. So I think, um, her grandma ends up being the one who helps Wit get her diagnosis and who's really supporting mm -hmm. her through this this illness. But it's also vice versa. Her grandma also has health issues and is kind of, she is managing the family and taking care of all of the bills. And so there is this appreciation for each other. Um, and one reader actually called Abuela um, a fairy godmother, which I thought was really oh. sweet. And I loved that description of, of yeah. how she sort of deals with, with Wit and is there for her. Yeah. And I think at that age, it's so important for young people to have somebody other than their parents who they can trust and connect with when it, there's things that don't really work to go through the parents. So I'm, I'm glad you sort of you know pulled out that relationship. Um, you, you described your books, as you said earlier, as rom-coms for fat brown girls. And The Fall of Rivera addresses chronic illness and sexuality and fat phobia and Latinx identity and class, which I assume makes your books uh, a target for right-wing book banning um, backlash. Have have your books been banned? I actually, a, a couple weeks ago, just got my first notification that um, ah. Fat Chance Charlie Vega and No Filter and Other Lives have been banned. Um, it was part of a We Need Diverse Books grant. Um, and mm -hmm. unfortunately, those are being targeted. And yeah, a lot of, a lot of books that, you know, are incredibly well-meaning are talking about these very topical issues are exploring things like identity and sexuality are we're seeing them be pulled off the shelves and it feels like a really mm -hmm. scary time yeah yeah how does it impact you as a person and as a writer how does it um does it change the way, way you write or um the the way you think about your your books and your audience for me i i don't think it changes the way that i write but it certainly uh, influences the f the feeling of how important this is, right? So yeah. it's mm -hmm. almost like I started writing these books with the hope of reaching maybe one or two, you know, teens who are going through the same thing I am. And now it feels even more important to mm -hmm. push, push ahead and forge ahead yeah. through this difficulty because I think these stories are needed now more than ever. Um, and it worries me that those, those teens who are dealing with things that are already so isolating are now not able to see themselves in literature which is so so important um and what does that mean for them you know when they can't even go to the library and pick up a book where a character shares the same you know identity as them yeah yeah um and in the book wit has pcos polycystic ovarian syndrome as do you as, as you mentioned yeah. um so tell us what this is and how it affects wit yeah, so it is one of the, I, I think, a very baffling <laughs> illness that, that exists mm -hmm. out there, but it's also very prevalent. So a lot of people who have uteruses deal with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and so 
the, I guess, medical diagnosis is essentially that you have little cysts that grow on your uterus and your ovaries, right? So you have these cysts on your ovaries. It causes issues with, um, you know, fertility and getting pregnant and things like that. There's also all of these other, Ill, like different um, symptoms that you can experience and it's different for mm -hmm. every person. So Wit has this long list in the book where <laughs> she kind of writes out all of the things that her doctor has told us she might experience and that she goes through this like, you know, really existential crisis where she's like, there's also no cure and there's no one way to treat this. And she's having such a hard time coming to terms with what this illness means and how it affects her day-to-day -day life um and that was very much my experience after i got diagnosed mm -hmm. and i think it's really hard when you're a woman and you're trying to get help for your whatever illness especially quote unquote women women's illnesses um mm -hmm. sometimes it causes a lot of frustration just to get a little bit of help for whatever you're sort of dealing with but crystal maldonado yeah. the, uh, the author of the fall of wit rivera one reviewer points out that what this reviewer loved is that instead of describing the chronic illness and uh, all those details, uh, uh, they're not a defect in your writing. They're a mm -hmm. part of who we are, like a sort of background, mm -hmm. a story that we have. This is who I am. It doesn't make me a defective person. I sort of loved reading that reviewer's comments. Oh, thank you. And that is such a nice way of putting it, I think. And that was kind of what I was trying to do with this story was, I think we all have our own illnesses in some way, right? Some of them mm -hmm. are visible, some of them are invisible, and they become a part of us, but they don't define us. And so I think for wit, that becomes her, her struggle and what she has to figure out. She has to figure out how, how does she stay wit while also having these illness, this illness and these traits that she's got to deal with. Yeah. Um, so, Crystal Maldonado, um, you, um, you you start the book as you read um, you read the first couple of paragraphs talking about how much she loves fall and Western Mass. Um, so, what are your favorite Western Mass fall activities? Oh my gosh! So I am obsessed with pumpkin picking and apple picking, and so mm -hmm. is my four year old. So she started asking if we could go apple picking probably in june and <laughs> having i had to break her heart and say they're not quite ready yet you know yet. um but those are some of my favorites i also just love i like wit just love a pumpkin spice latte i love <laughs> i love a rainy day where you get to curl up with a good book or a, you know a movie or something like that i just think um there's so much joy that comes out of just a season and we in Western Mass, but also New England in general, have um, like we go leaf peeping. That's a thing we do yeah. for fun where we plot out our roots and we go driving or walking or hiking just so we can look at the colors. And I just think that's so sweet as like a human, a human thing that we have in common. We're like, wow, aren't these trees so pretty? And how, how can we go see them? <laughs> Yeah, it is, it is the, the glory of living here. Um, so what are you, are you working on a new book at, at this time? Are you, do you have a new project? I do. So I actually have two books kind of in the pipeline. So one is coming out next summer. It's my first mm -hmm. ever middle grade book. So ah, okay. I, a little bit younger. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a, actually, I'm co-authoring this book with author Julie Murphy, who wrote Dumplin'. Um, okay. So it's very exciting. It's got a supernatural 
natural element and it's about two fat best friends who end up at um, summer camp together and it turns out that there might be some supernatural elements at the camp so it's not not quite as wholesome as they thought um, and then next the beyond that I have another young adult project I'm working on that'll be set actually in the same world as Whit Rivera so oh, good. yeah so we are have not seen the end of her and her family yet and especially um, the boy band that's mentioned in the book <laughs> oh okay good well we've been talking this has been a delight talking with Crystal Maldonado whose new book the fall of Whit Rivera uh, came out uh, a few months ago and um, Crystal will be um, speaking at uh, Odyssey Bookshop um, tomorrow night, Tuesday, November 7th at 7 p.m. You can find out more on their website, odysseybks.com. So thank you so much for talking to us today, Crystal. Well, oh, I, and so I just wanted to point me. out, there was one review that I really thought was wonderful in Starry Mag that said, honestly, uh, this book was a real rele revelation in a positive oh. way. Uh, and, and she, uh, your, your work is described as just a really meaningful way to look at the world for young people. So I, I think it, it's a real talent that you have. And uh, I hope people come to the Odyssey Bookstore and, and Bookshop and enjoy your, your reading. Oh, well, thank you so much. That means a lot. And I hope I see a bunch of friends and new faces there, too. I, and I love that you're That's local. Crystal Maldonado. And thank you, Megan Zinn, for bringing Crystal to us. Thank you. We'll see you next Monday. Everybody else, thank you so much for joining Talk the Talk. Remember, walk the walk. Grandma's hand, sue the local unwed mother. Grandma's hand used to... It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman. Weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.